0: I wanted to start with the champions. I wanted to understand what are you doing in your offices? What are the things that we're doing well? What are the things that we have opportunities for growth? How do we start celebrating that culture in the offices? And then in those conversations that started at once a month, I was starting to get a sense of what it means to be in Dallas, what it means to Mm. be in DC, what it means to be in Singapore, in India, in London and I started creating that framework and, that, and the framework that would then be tailored to what our goals were going to be and how we address those things.
1: Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Isal Santos Giselle is Director of Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, also known as Jedi for Star Wars fans, at HKS. So, thank you for joining me, Giselle.
0: No, oh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah. I'm very excited.
1: So, I'd like to start off with just the very beginning. What's been your career trajectory so far?
0: So, my career trajectory has been everything but linear. I started once I graduated from my master's degree, I started in DC working on big commercial mixed-use buildings, doing a little bit of everything. Actually, my first project was designing columns. I definitely remember that vividly. And I I have done everything from villas in the Middle East, uh, master plans, uh, chiller plans, courthouses, uh, residential uh, hospitals, uh, everything. And in the last five years, I've focused most of my time on medical planning and really understanding and learning what that means because it's definitely a more dedicated aspect of architecture. Mm -hmm. And after about four years, I was asked to take on the role of director of EDI. Now we've transitioned into adding justice as a preface to the conversation, but I've done pretty much any kind of building type at any scale at any time through my trajectory. Mm
1: -hmm. So I've
0: done a little bit of everything.
1: And so, and how long you been at HKS?
0: I've been at HKS five years. I started almost exactly five years ago. No, excuse me. It's 2021. I keep forgetting. I started March, 2020, 2015,
1: 2015. And
0: the reason I transitioned to HKS is because I was very passionate about healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to delve into into medical planning. And I was going to have the opportunity to work in my communities. My first project was transitioning from starting healthcare planning at a micro scale. I was doing some templates in Chile, which I thought was also very interesting because I was able to use my, my language. Spanish is my first language, but the opportunity to do work in my community was very important to me. So I transitioned to do a big surgical pavilion, Georgetown university, which was very close to where I lived and I worked. And it was an opportunity that I could not pass. It was, an opportunity to do a project from the onset in my community in a building that I was very familiar with in a context that I had really wanted to understand and and delve into.
1: That's fantastic. And So HK, would you say that HKS's core focus is in um, the healthcare field or is it broader?
0: It's definitely broader. I think there's a a very solid uh, core of work in healthcare and that is one of our biggest components and most of the work that we do, but certainly not all, we're an international firm and we do hospitality, commercial education, mixed use. We're actually start, starting life sciences, a practice in life science. We have now acquired a group that does senior living and mm-hmm. transition that straddles really beautifully the healthcare practice and living spaces and residential spaces, hospitality. We do a lot. Also mission critical. I think it depends on where we are. We have about 24 offices across the world, primarily in the U.S., but we're on the East Coast, on the Central, and I'm in D.C. on the East Coast. Hmm. But we have offices in London, in Shanghai, Singapore, and Tokyo as well.
1: Hmm. Wow. And so for you and your role, is it defined as a global role, ultimately?
0: It is currently defined as a global role, whatever that means at mm-hmm. the moment. But yes, I do focus on creating belonging for the entire firm. So I have all my calls mm-hmm. and my conversations and span spam the globe and learning what it means to be truly global.
1: Yeah. I love how you phrase that creating belonging. That's like a, almost like a succinct, would you say that's kind of the succinct pitch for like your role in general is the, yeah. in general, yeah, and foster belonging. So- yeah. How is your team structured? Do you have people that report to you? Do you, or as an individual, do you work across different functions? Maybe help us kind of guide us through that.
0: Sure. So that is something that I'm continually learning that is very specific to the firm that you're in. So when I took on this role in 2019, because I was, I think I was the third person to formally have this role as an architect, as somebody that's trained as an architect or interior designer. I think I was the third person to formally have this role very publicly. So I remember at the onset of that conversation, the ask was, what should this look like? What is this? So I have done a lot of work with AIA. I have built several committees and my mind kind of operates that way. So the first thing I thought of was we really need to make or create a structure of accountability for my role. My role was set under the ESG umbrella at HKS. So what that means is we wanted to create an environmental social governance structure for the firm. And at the component of that structure, because it wanted to address the UN Global Compact and the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, we wanted to focus on sustainability, on the design aspect of our firm that focuses on how we build belonging and represent our marginalized communities and what we do in the firm to elevate that conversation internally. So that structure is comprised of the chief sustainability officer, the directors or co-directors of Citizen HKs is our arm to do this pro bono work that impacts our communities and then this EDI role at the onset. So because that structure occurs at a global level or firm wide level, the conversation was well, how does that role really tackle and address the SDGs that we want to challenge ourselves and to create these goals around. So the two that fall under my scope of work, although everything is very matrixed, right? The goals mm-hmm. and the strategies and the design, it's kind of a—it's this beautiful matrix. The two that primarily comprised my focus were reduced inequalities and gender parity. So what I wanted to do at the onset was create a structure that was not only me, and encompass SDGs. But it started at a leadership level because my role Mm. was generated by leadership and it needs to have that leadership buy-in, but also at the grassroots level. You need people in every office to want to do this work, to want to engage in this work. So the structure that we created was one, it was sort of a four-part structure. So it's the Jedi director, which is me, a Jedi council or a group of people that are leading that cross the spectrum of the firm uh, that is not only diverse in thought and gender and race, but also spanned rank and title as well. Mm. And the Jedi champions, as we call them, which are one or two people in each office or in our large offices in each team that really try to tackle what is happening in their offices. What does it look like? How do you build belonging in your offices? And what I wanted to do was create a structure that could leverage what was happening in the offices and the leadership um, support and buy-in and also the agency and become a conduit of communication because we really need buy-in from everybody in the mm-hmm. firm to make this plausible. So that structure is sort of four part. And originally because I'm very much a committee builder and I'm a doer I wanted to start with the champions. I wanted to understand what are you doing in your offices? What are the things that we're doing well? What are the things that we have opportunities for growth? How do we start celebrating that culture in the offices? In those conversations that started at once a month, I was starting to get a sense of what it means to be in Dallas, what it means to Mm. be in DC, what it means to be in Singapore, in India, in London. And I started creating that framework and, that, and the framework that would then be tailored to what our goals were going to be and how we address those things. So in addition to those structures, I created what I call the JEDI framework, which is primarily based off of the acknowledgement that we need to create a common language. So I first defined what justice means. So what is justice? What is equity, what is diversity, and what is inclusion. And I used the Guides for Equitable Practice from AIA. They defined a lot of those terminology at the onset. And then what should that look like as pillars? So the four pillars in our firm are firm equity. So all the things in the firm that create that structure of support and access to resources. Workplace culture. How do we build that belonging? How do we leverage our differences? to create innovation, and challenge each other and celebrate and get to know each other better, designing for inclusion because we're a design firm, that's what we do. So what does it look like to acknowledge everybody who's not at the table? What does representation mean? How do you create belonging and advising for inclusion with the goal that in the future long term we become advocates and to accomplices for mm-hmm. this work. So not only what we do internally and how we do it, but how we partner and how we collaborate to create better communities overall. So that's big picture. That's sort of the framework, and it starts with the Jedi mindset, the framework, and then the structure of accountability in the firm.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and it's really it's really exciting. Like it's very clear how you kind of go from the macro side, where the whole everything begins with leadership. Basically, saying we are aligning ourselves organizationally to this objective. Very interesting to know how, like, the objective is framed within, let's say, other global initiatives that are happening. You mentioned the UN document. Yeah. And other goals that are that kind of surface up where it's not just HKS necessarily, but it's trying to align itself with even a broader cohort of people, which is fascinating that that kind of input is taken from leadership and brought into the, the organization as a whole. The other things that were really interesting that I think are helpful to just almost like package in a way or just focus on them, one is how you are essentially an individual leading this effort and it takes a village for any anything to get done, especially at the skill in which you're operating and your instincts because of your experiences is to find, as you said, the champions, right? People who would be passionate to take on align this so Because sometimes this is actually, it could either be like additional work, you know, it's a, something that has to be prioritized. And it's much easier to do that when you can find the people within the company that intrinsically are motivated by the challenge. And I think that is as a lesson or something to, for people watching to kind of take away is that that can happen almost any scale of organization. Just finding the people that believe in what you're doing gets you a lot farther. And that can be how you recruit. It's just a really great principle to consider organizationally. And then how you are able to tie that to, you know, this idea of a framework. And one of our previous conversations in previous webinar with Renz uh, Hayes has his own structural engineering practice. He talks about mission, vision, and values as the way in which the whole company is is structured. And it gives him leverage. And for some people that might not be used to working at a certain scale or maybe running their own firm. You know, some of these things can feel like too businessy, right? But, or there could be that that reaction, but it really is very helpful, right? Because so much of creating these frameworks is that it removes the noise of other things, right? It just very clear, like, how do we make decisions? How can you make decisions autonomously, right? Without needing approval for every little thing. It just allows you to really, Create ultimately, I think you referenced it as one of your pillars, kind of culture, right? Of, and I think that that is really powerful. And I kind of just wanted to talk about those things a little bit discreetly. What would you say? Because I mean, the way you're presenting it's very, very like, but I know there's challenges, right? There's like, (laughs) along the way, it's not all perfect. So I'm very curious, like, what along the way would have been the challenges or points of friction that you've identified that maybe are guiding you now and think in your thinking around this topic.
0: I think you phrased this beautifully. Thank you very much for taking what I said and making it sound a lot more strategic than it actually was. But ultimately, yes, that was the goal. First, you have to build your village, right? You have to build the people that you can rely on, that become your advisors, that do the work with you so that you can consistently do what you feel like you need to do, but also you know have your back. Uh, so I love how you unpack that. It's very, very true. Also, yeah, I may have, because it's been two years, I may have the framework down. It was definitely not two to two, although I would love to say it was. It took a long time for even myself to be comfortable with articulating this is a strategy. There is a vision. And for me, the easiest thing was there's already a firm-wide mandate to do this work. So it was a lot easier for me to acknowledge our mission And then parallel my mission to that. And then understand my vision and parallel to that vision. You're spot on, nailed it. And you constantly have to do that. And even though you're absolutely right, it sounds very businessy. It anchors you consistently and it empowers you to do the work that you need to do because you don't feel like you exist in a vacuum. You're constantly going back and referencing the big picture and acknowledging that this is a strategy that is firm-wide and all you're doing is championing and moving that forward. And I mentioned that because that is in part how I address those challenges that always happen. We're a, a firm of 1,300 plus people, nobody. And it's impossible to get 1,300 people to agree all the time mm-hmm. on a vision, a mission, a strategy. That That's just unrealistic. So pulling it back consistently to that, this is about our our mission to become a leading firm alignment with the UN Global Compact. This is because we want to partner with clients and people that have the same vision and the same mission that we do. And you're absolutely right. It is at the core of our value. What values do we bring to the table? Who aligns with our values? And how do we consistently push that messaging forward? Because long at the end of the day, we want to create the same outcomes and the same impact in our communities, whether it's our community is the client at that time, whether our community is long-term, whatever the city is going to look like, whether it's a healthcare system, we constantly have to go back because there are people that are saying, of course, you know, why are we investing in Jedi? We're a design firm. We're an architecture right. firm. That's a lot of time and energy that we're focusing on extra or something extra, So, pulling it always back to the business case. And there are many ways of making the business case. One of our business cases is we are a design excellence firm. It aligns with the UN Global Compact. The UN Global Compact, their principles, the SDGs, align with the design for excellence framework for AIA. And we even had to create a matrix. You can download it on our report for the UN Global Compact to say all of these things align with each other. And because our goal is to be excellent designers and bring the best designs forward, then we have to do all these things. And Mm -hmm. I always say, you can't do unless you are. We have to embody these things first, and then we can do them. But it it, it takes time because, for example, right now, I'm 100% on this work. And I'm hopefully, because the structure and the framework is embedded in the firm, then I will not need to do all this work sort of by myself. We get the champions. And even though I exist sort of as the director, and I don't have reports, I exist within the talent team. So the talent team is talent acquisition, mm. HR, marketing, internal communications, professional development. And we meet once or twice a week to talk about how to move forward all initiatives. So they're my village. They are my day to day people that I align myself with. They get the message. We're all aligned and we move forward. But My biggest challenges have been solidifying the common language. So when we talk about justice, we are all talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. When we talk about equity, we're talking about access to resources, about a framework that provides access to those resources. When we talk about diversity, we're talking about representation. We're not talking about the token person. We're talking about what representation means to have agency at the table. And that's very different. Because you can talk about diversity in many different ways, thought leadership, but it's acknowledgement that if that person or if that group of people are not at the table, then you have to be an advocate for them. And in the future, they should be at the table to be representatives of that thought, of that need at that point. And when we talk about inclusion, which at the beginning, it was total deer cotton headlights. When we talk about inclusion, we're talking about agency and we're talking about outcomes. And I haven't coined those terms. I know Brian Lee and Rosa Chang have done a really good job at pulling at the thread of J-E equals D-I and what those things really mean in very concise ways. But creating that language, that was a year's worth of work. Mm -hmm. And then uh, COVID happened and then uh, the unfortunate murder of George Floyd and then all of a sudden these things became kind of buzzwords and that inherently proved its own challenges because you was a Jedi, oh, that's cool. Okay, well, how do we pull that back to what that means for us and the mm-hmm. firm? How do we create alignment and our values to what that means? And how do you embody that as a teammate, as a person? And then taking it a tier down, what does that mean for the bottom line? And at the beginning, we had to say, okay, well, that means high-performing teams that create greater profit and i had to pull harvard diversity research mckinley research that proved unequivocally that if you have greater diversity on a board you become part of the first the top quartile of organizations that deliver most profit that if you have high-performing teams that are diverse you also create profit but if you have diverse teams that are not well-managed, you end up doing, you're doing poorly, even more poorly than homogeneous teams. So where do you want to be in that spectrum? Do you want to be diverse teams that are poorly managed? Mm. Do you want to be homogeneous teams that are doing fine? Or do you want to be high-performing diverse teams that outperform the rest? So how do you pull it to the profit line where a lot of people, they understand that better and then start unpacking, well, if you want to be a high performing, diverse team, which is I think where we want to get to, because that's where true innovation happens, then what kind of leadership do we need? What tools do we need to make those leaders inclusive, empowered, open, vulnerable? Those are even things that we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. The corporate world doesn't talk about let's make a vulnerable and empathic leader. That's what that we don't even have the language to talk about that. So what does it mean? To truly be an empathic leader, what does it mean to really give yourself and open yourself up? That can be really scary. So, what does that look like, also in the space? I think it's there's still a long way to go to get people to recognize their place in that language and how to use that to empower themselves and teams to get to that sweet spot of true innovation. And it really means you have to be comfortable challenging yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to be comfortable in recognizing who you are, your self-awareness, awareness of the other, and then build that as a business case for being the optimum leader in a firm. And that's a whole lot to unpack, too. Yeah. And not only in this space where we're in COVID at home and you're dealing with your kids, yeah. now you have this added thing that now you have to be very empathic and vulnerable. It's it's a lot to ask. but you have to encourage that conversation because at the core it's about values and mm-hmm. for our firm our values are purpose character and relationships so constantly pulling it back to what does that mean why is that important this Jedi space and who do you want to be and where do we want to get to in the future who do we want to be in the future
1: Yeah. When you mentioned the, going back to when you are talking about the cross-functional nature of where you sit across all these different teams on the talent side, which seems to have both internal and external, right? It seems so cross-functional that it really carries a wide net. I'm fascinated by that because I think there's an underlying theme of storytelling in what you're describing, what you're talking about. There's a lot of written about this, about like how leadership is actually repetition in some ways, like reductively just you are saying the same thing over and over again because people need to hear it over and over again. And then you're finding out ways of saying the same thing in new formats. So like there's ways of saying the same thing by distributing internal emails, right? That kind of say, here's the work of the team or like, here's the work of whatever. And that kind of is an internal marketing that constantly has to happen to keep beating the drum of like, this is why we exist. This is why we're here. Because people can lose the plot, right? It's very hard for people on a day-to-day basis to not only focus on what they're doing, but then focus on these other things that might not directly at that moment apply to like the challenge that they're facing, but it's important that they are still directionally aligned to it on the course of the year. But the other thing that was interesting about what you're describing had to do with you were talking about, what was I'm kind of blanking? I think it had to do with the repetition side, but it was just kind of like this idea that you're also nesting in things into other initiatives in a really interesting way, where you describe this kind of like the way you're describing it is like a, a two by two matrix of you know high performing teams that are also high, so like really great managed teams that are also very diverse sit at the highest quadrant versus like very diverse teams but low performing or poor managed teams. Kind or of, it might be like the farther end of the quadrant. What's kind of interesting about that is that what really could be the case here ultimately is that if you teach people to be better managers, they could ultimately become better at the diversity and inclusion. That there's a, It's not like any, it doesn't have to be necessarily exclusive. It's just that it's almost sort of, it's like an additional layer to it. But I just think it's like, it kind of really strengthened the case completely. And I think what you're also underscoring is the fact that like, If you get people to, in other words, if you define what good leadership looks like and good leadership includes diversity and inclusion, then sort of by default, like the company, that's something that like there's no doubt anyone can almost get behind because it's embedded. It's like so intrinsic to the things that you're trying to reiterate over and over again. So I think there's something really interesting there, like culturally, where it's like we're going to be the best led team or as a company, we're going to have the best-led teams barred on out of the entire industry. Here's what good leadership means to us. And that one of those definitions is diverse and inclusive and thinking about equity and justice on every single project and every single interaction. That is how we define it. Now, my question then becomes, okay, how do you calculate or define or what are the metrics that you then employ to be able to determine whether it's... whether Teams are well led, and this kind of like ties into a lot of like everything from like reviews. So, but I'm just curious, like how then do you start to structure metrics within the company? And I know this is a personal kind of a very interesting aspect that you're really thinking about. Maybe talk a little bit about that, how you deal with the metrics that help to drive alignment. Mm-hmm. With what you're doing?
0: That is the question. <laughs> how do you measure impact? How do you measure that you are in fact achieving the goals and the way that you think that you are moving in the direction, like in the way that you think you should, in the way that you think you are. So yeah, we were having this conversation around, the good thing at HKS is we have a director of research and she's brilliant, Upali Nanda, And one of the things that she's striving to get more of the firm to do, and this is industry-wide as it's not isolated to HKS, but there is so much, and you did actually an interview with David a while back. Everything wants to be data-driven because it wants to be anchored in something very concrete and solid. So right now in the firm, we're looking at data and studying various ways of metric analysis. And from my scope, of course, I'm trying to analyze diversity, engagement, uh, retention, all of those things and what they mean through the lens of JEDI. So is it, is it true that if you get more diverse leadership, people feel more recognized and, and all of that, but how, because it's long-term, right? Because Mm -hmm. right now we are in the process of acknowledging the lack of diversity and the lack of representation. How do you right now start to think about how you want to measure the impact long-term with the information that you currently have? And that's a big question for us, at least. Right now, something that we're doing, we have a thing called the incubator proposals within HKS, where we try to study a topic. And one of the things that we want to delve into, not only through the practice and design, is social constructs. And the big question that one of our incubators wants to tackle is, how do you measure impact through this JEDI lens? So first, we have to unpack, what are we measuring? Hmm. Right now, there are many ways of measuring diversity. You can do these matrices. You measure by rank, by title, by discipline. And then you look at where the trajectory wants to set. What does parity mean? And this is stuff that we're starting to do in the industry, right? We didn't have, actually, I don't think we currently have, even through the AIA, a very concrete set of data that shows us where we were because we weren't Hmm. even measuring any of this information until more recently. NCARB started to measure this only a few years ago. And so we're starting first to define, do we use, for example, the Just Label? Do we use systems that exist already that have a certain criteria? And then we use those then to measure profitability or measure high-performing teams. Do we partner with a consultant that already has a structure like Great Place to Work or Paradigm, do we work with them in how we measure culture? Because there are many firms and many organizations that have these pulse surveys mm-hmm. of how we measure culture. We're looking at other architecture firms that have started to create their own systems and define, well, we could use the same kind of metrics, but who is really sharing the impact If you've reached gender parity in your firm, does that equate to greater profitability? And if it does, are there better teams that have come out of this? You get top Mm. projects out of this. So that right now we're starting to look at these micro-projects that first we have to understand what we want to measure, analyzing through these other systems, what has worked and what hasn't worked. Then what is the impact on those projects and on those teams of measuring that? And then are our projects reflective of better teams, better managed, better, more representation and more diverse teams? And if so, then we can draw a line directly from that and say, well, in the future, we've mm-hmm. ad- we can recognize that our top projects internally look like this. The teams that achieve those projects look like this. And this is the kind of leader that embodied the set of values that enabled those teams that enabled that project. I don't know currently if anybody's doing that, but that's where I would like to focus on the next few years to really delve into the data, partner with people that are leading in this mm-hmm. space, and then define maybe what we have historically called high performing teams, and then what we are currently seeing are becoming high-performing teams and what our bottom line looks like, and then set goals for maybe greater profit, but maybe it doesn't start with profit. Maybe it starts with people feeling like they have greater agency. Mm. Maybe we come to find that it's not more meetings, but it's more reporting or better reporting or quicker. Right. Check-ins. So there's so many ways to kind of unpack that, but we haven't drawn that line and that's where we want to get to. We want to figure out what those things are looking like and who's doing it well.
1: Yeah, there's a, a really great book that one of my favorite books is called, a uh, warning, it's a very uh, businessy title. It's called High Output Management and it's written by the former uh, CEO of Intel. Actually, I would say it's not super dry of a book, it's actually very well, like just plain spoken, written, just very tactical. I mean, in the book, it talks about how to have a meeting and it has a four point quadrant that basically says, if you're a manager in a meeting, if you're like the, the highest ranked person in a meeting and you're talking, the meeting is off track. That is like basically at, at the granular level. It talks about how to, how to structure one-on-ones and, and whatnot, but something that's very interesting and relevant is this idea of like what a manager does or what a manager is and, Andy Grove defines the manager as it's like equal to the output of their team times the output of teams adjacent to that person, which is fascinating, right? Because it means that actually great leadership is not just about within your own kind of org, like who directly reports to you, but it really means how impactful are you, let's say, in an architecture firm, there's the marketing team, right? And the marketing team typically needs information from project teams to understand pipeline or, hey, they're going to do an RFP, whatever. right. How does a leader in one group, let's say the studio director or within whatever, right? Oh, an example. How do they surface up information proactively to the marketing team, right? Do they do that? Is that something where it's like there's a situational awareness in a way and it, that is not—it's not about silos, but it's about how do we all, as a company, move forward. And I think that—I mean—it's an amazing book because of the fact that it gets so granular. And so I highly encourage anyone watching. But yeah, it just made me think of that—that that maybe there's something about that about not just the impact that that person is having on individual project, but as an example, let's say, just talking hypothetical, I'm a manager in my project, and I was able to get 10% margin off of this project, but we find out that because of things that I was able to do across other teams or like how I kind of helped out, I actually helped increase other teams' margins by 5% from something like I hosted like a more cross-functional activity, a new initiative that actually increased the entirety, right? So like a global maximum, we're kind of moving everything forward. So I don't know. I think there's that's a really fascinating problem that you're trying to tackle right now. And I'm super curious, you know, if we were touch base back in the year, what is it, what kind of progress has been made on helping to un, unpacking and defining what great leadership ultimately means? Because it is a very, it's a multifaceted product and I mean, problem, which makes me think that if you were able to solve it, it would be a great product because I'm sure a lot of companies actually face very similar challenges when it comes to understanding what could be seen as a both a very qualitative thing and very quantitative, right? It, it inherently str- straddles both.
0: I, yes. Okay. Hold me to (laughs) to the fire. A year? I don't think it's... (laughs) No,
1: no, no. no no A lot that you'll learn, right? From after like diving into this for a year.
0: I'm hopeful. I'm very, very hopeful. And I thank you for that suggestion. I think I need to read that book. There's also a book that I started. It's also very technical. It's called The Difference. And it's a, a book by, I think he's a mathematician that tried to unpack why differences and why diversity is good in teams, but it's all about, yeah, it's a mathematical problem, Mm -hmm. which I find those things very fascinating because from my space and from the architect space, it's very experiential, right? We want people to feel good. And if you feel good, you want to engage more. If you want to engage more, there's more collaboration. Like it feels very emotional and very experiential, but you're absolutely right. It can be very technical as well. And if we are able to marry those two things together, to get to a point that we can qualify and quantify the value in these things, then it would be amazing. Mm. I'm sure other people have tried to tackle, so I will not say that I can do it, but I will give it (laughs) my all. And thank you for putting it that way, because I think through this research project, we need to be a little bit more deliberate and intentional. And looking at these strategies that are very technical, Hmm. hopefully they will help us to get to the experiential side and and bridging. So I think for me, that conversation about being a great leader, it's being good at bridging. And those qualities are complex. They have to do so much about who you are, how you relate Hmm. to other people, and how you become a great synergist and collaborator. And that word bridging is something that I learned as a concept last year and trying to study this work. And I think we can all be better bridgers, but I wonder how it would, how that concept may start to overlay with these ideas of the teams, the quadrants. Yeah, that's mm. very interesting.
1: Yeah, very, very cool. So I like to open it up for any questions that people might have. I have some additional ones just in case people are shy. Oh, someone asked what the book was called again. I think, so there are two books we talked about. One is High Output Management. I can write in the chat, actually, for everybody. And then the other one was called The Difference, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And the author's name escapes me. So sorry about that. But
1: it's The worry. No all, right. all right, thank you. So while people get, get their questions in, I think another uh, topic that is, is attendant to this is because we talked about a little bit about goals. And I think obviously goals help to structure the alignment of things. And I think as as architects, the project typically ends when something's been delivered, right? It's like, there's like this. So that means that this idea of maintenance is actually a sort of a concept that doesn't always live in firms as a thing, right? Because so much of it's like, oh, this project in and out sort of thing, right? But in something like this, especially when you start to get, maybe another way to put it, is as you start to grow a firm, you need time and accountability to focus on things that are internal to the company, that are iterative, that are long-term, that are not just like one and done, and that conflict oftentimes, right, with this idea of like billable time. So non, like, you know, which is a constant sort of a point of, of tension within firms is like, how do we be efficient with the resources that we have. And so a lot of times you think about billable time. But I think what you're also highlighting in this conversation is that the investment, let's say, of non-billable time into initiatives that have a net of impact on the entire business are investments, right? They're investments you're making today that have a return in the future. And I think that's something that I'm curious as you... What your thoughts are about that? About maintaining the momentum of things and the challenges that may come from that, just within the reality of a practice that has to bring in projects that have defined timelines.
0: Well, that is a phenomenal question, and that is honestly something I struggle with, even personally, because I I was working on projects for 14 years. All I did was sit in front of the computer and think about deliverables. So pivoting to thinking about strategy. About initiatives that, yes, they may seem finite, but the goal is for them to be sustainable and, mm-hmm. and long term. And it's about the longevity of the firm, that there's no timeline to that. Mm-hmm. And even for me, switching from the mindset of I'm not a hundred percent billable or 95% billable or 85% billable, and I don't have an immediate deliverable to share that shows impact that shows profitability, that shows happiness and a better climate is actually terrifying. I'm going to Mm -hmm. be totally honest. It's terrifying because for me, and I'm a product of the recession from 2008 to 2010, personally, and I'm being super open and candid, personally, that feeling of not being able to meet these immediate outcomes that show that I'm being productive and effective, and I'm doing the things that I feel are valuable yet equate to something that everybody understands is something that I struggle with. And I wonder if who struggles with that, because that definitely shows off in a little bit of imposter syndrome, but you've pretty much explained it beautifully. I think there need for even internally, there needs to be a recognition in myself that this is the long game. That if we had figured this out already, we wouldn't be talking about this. And that there is strength in that, in the agile process where you try something, you likely fail or you win, but you learn something. You experience that process. You learn something from end output, even though it may not be the specific output that you're seeking. You learn from that and then you try something new. And you have to be comfortable in continually changing, pivoting, creating these solid initiatives, but couch them under a strategy and an umbrella. So for me, it has been easier to fall back on the UN Global Compact Mm. and use that as the bedrock and say, well, gender parity is not something that I can change today. It's something that's going to take a very long time. And even if our firm reaches gender parity, then... I can look at, at my competitors. I can look at the industry and what does that look like? And then that means we need to be leading in the space and we need to do more to affect others. If our industry gets to that place, is our communities are the same? So it's for me, it's about scope mm. and being comfortable and then increasing my scope so that I'm constantly challenged and comfortable and then continually seeking that and sharing that confidently and saying, I can tell you now that I'm coming up with two or three initiatives, but the goal is not meeting that initiative. The goal is better retention, and that's going to fluctuate. The goal is increasing our diversity in our board, and our industry doesn't look like that. So there will be times when we're doing really well, and then it's not going to look like that anymore. So it's going to be, in my mind, kind of this sinuous kind of curve that hopefully equates to an upgrade, an uphill climb and a diagonal going to the right place. But it's a, oh, a you'd trigger, total trigger of not being 100% billable and wanting to be effective. But there are many people that are doing that. Even when you become in the C-suite, there is a thought leadership and an expertise that you will have just because you've gone through that process. That cannot equate to billable time, but that the value comes in your experience. And then you have to show that you are able to be at the table with agency, being able to speak up and then teaching that to other people. And that's not isolated to my role. We Mm -hmm. we do that in some form or fashion. But like you said, letting people know that then that's the value that you bring to the table. And then hopefully you get a five-year plan and that you're showing that through that long term, you're showing progress. But I want to also be able to work in projects and test out that what we're doing in the firm to create greater equity translates into our design. I don't want to disconnect completely from that because for me, the output will be our communities feel like we're being greater advocates for them. Mm. they feel like their communities look like what they want it to look like and it makes them better. And that is definitely post-occupancy. What does that right. look like long-term? So mm. never-ending processes. So I don't even know if I answered your question. Oh,
1: no, I, no, I mean, yes, uh, you did. I, there's like in different companies, there's this notion of, and we we use that also internally at Monograph. It's an, uh, this idea of a net promoter score, which is a survey question we ask our customers after a certain period of time that, basically says asks, from a scale of one to 10, how likely would you be to recommend Monograph to someone else? And directionally, what it gives us is an idea of, do people enjoy the product enough to do something that requires a risk, right? Recommending something to someone else is actually a risky endeavor. Not everybody just wants to willy-nilly try to recommend someone who's going to completely change how someone works, right? So to advocate for monograph is a big vote of confidence. And so that helps us to measure that, right? And I'm curious if like there could be, because it, it exists also for employees, right? It would say, how likely would you be able to recommend HKS to a friend of yours to apply? Might be a, a one way to look at that. I'm curious if there could be, as opposed to in a community, you could probably send out direct mail, because you could could get the data that's available. You could get, we all experience direct mail. So, but you could do something where you sent out direct mail and where people could easily just fill out a form and respond back. And it's basically about the project saying like, at whatever scale it is, you determine the neighborhood scope and you ask at least people within the community from a scale of 1 to 10, knowing that HKS worked on this project, how likely would you recommend whatever institution, city, blah, 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 to work with HKS again? That might be one way just kind of, Top of my head, of like understanding without going into the whole post occupancy, which a lot of times can seem maybe more daunting or a bigger scope of work, could be one way to get that that kind of data. Just just uh, thinking, just like trying to map over some of the stuff that we do. But yeah, I think it's a fascinating, super fascinating what you're working with. Also, the fact that you are part of a small community of people that are dealing with these issues in the architecture industry. How many people carry your at least you know are thinking about your role or have your role title in some respect in the industry? Do you have to know?
0: Currently, I don't know. And I'm happy that I don't know because they're much more than just the three of us. Mm. And because I, well, for better or worse, silver lining of COVID and BLM and everything that's happened, the sense of urgency and the awareness has increased. Mm. So for a lot of us, that we're interested in this topic, we've seen the door open and we're all running through it. So a lot of firms have recognized that they need to establish something quickly in order to compete with the rest of the firms that have been doing this and not that much longer. Although Perkins and Will has been doing this for probably a solid six years, I think. Mm. Smith Group has started to do this as well alongside us. I know Gensler is doing it as well. So other firms are starting to acknowledge that this is not an initiative. I know right. HTA, DLR, oh my God, because I'm starting to talk to them, even SOM. And different scales. One of the big questions that I get often is, how um, can you send me your job description? And what are you doing in your firm? Does it look like you? Do I need a person like you? Right. If I don't need a person like you, what could the framework look like? So that conversation has started to shift more in, it's not, do I need you? Is, okay, I know I need something that I know I need somebody that focuses on this work. The first question I I get asked is, how much time do you allocate to this? Well, I I tell you, how fast do you want to run? Because I can tell you right now, I'm a thousand percent on this. If you want to do this 50%, then you have to think about what that means for that person, the emotional involvement that they need. Uh, So there is a, a big movement and the door is open. And the question is more, is leadership leading this? Are the people internally doing this? And what does that look like for you? Because it doesn't have to look like me in my firm. It just needs to look like somebody's paying attention and somebody is willing to set time aside to focus on this and embed it in practice. But there are many more of us, thankfully.
1: That's great. It would be great to see all of you together and some sort of conference maybe Mm -hmm. in the future. That'd be pretty awesome. I say that because we're planning, we're potentially planning one ourselves and it might be might be good to have you on board. So, but yeah, I think this topic is super critical and really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through how you're doing it. The last thing I'll ask is it's kind of like a lightning round question, but not really. It's just the one I like to ask at the end. What's the nicest thing anyone has done for you?
0: The nicest thing that somebody has done to me, I think, has been a mentor telling me. I can see the fire and you have a very large flame broad and the best thing I can do is help you channel it. Mm. So in other words the best thing I can do is not be a roadblock but be a facilitator and help you. And it not only gave me confidence, made me feel like I had agency that I had the opportunity to speak up when I did and that I had somebody that had my back and that allowed me to feel that I could be effective and be impactful. And if I wasn't, this person was going to be there for me and help me because this person understood my value and my fiery passion as this person called it. And I haven't forgotten that. I have not forgotten that because that was a big, a big turning point for me in my career, even personally. So it's pretty much one of these, be comfortable in, uh, what's that saying? It's better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission.
1: Yeah, yeah, kind of one of these things, yeah. but in a
0: lovelier way. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, that's great. That's a great. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think everybody we get different answers to that question. I think that was a really nice one of of how someone could help you see yourself differently, which is really powerful. All right, so just before I wrap up, I just like to talk a little bit about monographs so people know, and so. Uh, I'll kind of just give you a little pitch. So if you're tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm, or if you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view on where your projects stand today, well, Monograph is here to help. We're designed by architects for architects. The team here has experienced the pain and developed a solution that allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets all in real time. Don't get stuck knowing where you are in a given project with our awesome money MoneyGantt, which is a really cool tool. You can immediately see whether you're on track or over budget at any given moment. And for those firms who we'll have to manage multiple designers on any given project, we also have a new resource tool, which allows you to reallocate your time while also seeing the impact it's going to have on your budget, almost like a mini forecast. So with Monograph, you'll never have to make decisions in the dark again. And thank you so much, yourself, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you,
0: George. I love the conversation. I'm going to have to reach out to you in the future. (laughs) Um, I'm happy you have in your brain. It's phenomenal. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.